Good morning. Uh, I want to thank uh, Sir Charles for filling in for me again this last Wednesday and um, for your prayers for our family. Um, it, we've had a quite a bumpy road the last couple of years. We've lost a lot of loved ones and a lot of family members, and uh, we've attended more funerals in the last uh, two and a half years than we'd like to ever again. Um, we kind of figured it out. It's about one every three months. Um, and so it's been, it's been a, a, an emotional time. But we come to Easter, and I am so thankful as I think about the loved ones we've lost and family members we lost, they all believed in Jesus Christ. And so I know where they are. As we sing songs to Christ and to God and for his glory, they're seeing his glory face to face. And what an awesome promise we all get this morning. And, and this is why we come and we celebrate Easter. This is why we celebrate actually every Sunday. Um, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, the disciples and the early believers changed their day of worship from the Sabbath to the first day of the week because it was a, a reminder that he is risen and he is alive and salvation is available for all who would place their faith in him alone. And I am so excited about what God wants to do for us this morning. And we are only going to be looking at one verse this morning. We're going to spend our time just in one verse. Ethan's going to throw it up here in a little bit. Not yet, just here in a moment, Ethan. But um, uh, I'm also excited to look out and I see the type of people that God has brought to this church family, whether uh, you call this home, this church your home family, or whether you're visiting with us this morning. You know, God has really blessed us with a lot of artistic people within our church family. I mean, obviously we have singers, as we've just seen, and musicians, um, but we also have individuals who are artistic in drawing and painting and sculpting and, and uh, doing things with the uh, theater, things like that. And we even have dancers in here. I know it's a Southern Baptist church, but we do have dancers within a Southern Baptist church. We call it an interpretive movement, right? Um, so, it, it, you know, because we don't want them to dance like David when the ark came back into Jerusalem. But... Um, you know, most of you know about me is that uh, I was uh, once a really big writer. Um, I used to write stories. I used to write poems a lot. That's uh, I wooed Jamie with many of my poetries. And um, right, yes, she says. Um, and I still write today. Um, obviously, I write messages and Bible studies and things like that uh, still to this day. But um, some of you also may remember that um, before I was called into the ministry, I was preparing myself to become a middle school English teacher. I don't know why. Well, I know why, because there was, there, I had a middle school English teacher that had a huge impact on my life. And so I, I wanted to pursue that endeavor so I could have impact on people's lives. And so, as you can guess, as I went to college, I began taking classes, a lot of English classes, um, to prepare for that field of work. And I can remember one particular class. I don't remember what it was called. It was probably like analyzing literature, because that's what we did. Uh, we read literature and poems and plays and all sorts of stories throughout all history, but we weren't allowed just to read them. I mean, we read things like The Heart of Darkness and Shakespeare and, you know, things like that. And, but it wasn't just read the story and, and say you read the story and then write like a, you know, a, a paper on the story. We had to analyze it. And so what that meant is we had to not just read the story, but we had to dig in and figure out, okay, what was 
the original author really meaning when he wrote this story or this play or this poem? And, and so, for example, like there would have been like a poem speaking of like wildflowers in the field and how beautiful they are. And on the surface, you think, okay, he's like outside enjoying nature. But when you dug into it, you find out that the author of the poem is actually writing about uh, people in big cities and, and how we can just go by so fast and not even see the beauty that is before us in different types of people that have been created. Um, and so it wasn't really one of my favorite classes because, you know, I, I like to read. Um, it was, the reading wasn't a problem. It, it reminded me, have you ever gone to an art museum and you're walking around and you see pictures and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a boat. And, oh, yeah, that's sunshine coming through the clouds. But then you come to, like, these canvases where it literally looks like the painter just went and you're like, you know, I guess they just hope something would stick and stay on the canvas, you know. And then you find out, like, because we were at the art museum not too long ago, and, and I was listening. They had, like, a, a guide going through, and she was analyzing the pictures and telling you, oh, the depths and the contrast and what all that meant. And, and I was standing at, at a, a, a thing that was hanging. I guess it was art. I even said to Jamie, how is that art? But anyway, um, so she comes up, and I hear her behind me say, okay, he was capturing the chaos of life. Uh, it looks like, you know, you just hope something hit and stuck on the canvas. And, and so I'm not really big into, like, analyzing that sort of way. I would need someone to interpret it for us. But here's the thing. I say this and I share this because this is exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to read one verse, and then we're going to get into the depths of that verse because what this verse holds is the truth of who Jesus Christ is was and will always be. It holds the truth of why we celebrate Easter. It holds the foundation of the church and what we are to proclaim and lift out into the world. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So you may be familiar with John 3.16. Well, I want us all to become familiar with 1 Timothy 3.16 this morning. And so I'm going to give a little background to the text, get a little context as we dive into this verse of what is being said here, what is the intention behind it. And so some of you who have been in the Wednesday night Bible studies and when we were walking through the New Testament over you, some of this is going to sound familiar to some of you. Um, I know, Derek, you were really gung-ho for Bible trivia. You were very disappointed when we didn't do it, but so you'll probably got all this retained in your head and you're like, yeah, I already know that, but here we go. 1 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. He was commissioned by God to do that. It was probably written before or after his first release from prison while he was in Rome. So if you read the book of Acts, that's kind of where Acts ends. Is Paul is in Rome and he's going to be in prison. He's under a house arrest. But it's written prior to his final imprisonment in which he wrote 2 Timothy. And it's written to a young disciple named yeah, that's you. Yeah, so you're getting your Bible trivia now. It's written to a young disciple named, don't stop drinking coffee and answer the question. <laughs> Timothy, thank you. All right, so uh, we know that Timothy is younger, most likely in his late 20s to early 30s, and that may not seem young to some of us, but in this day and age, to lead a church, to lead a group of people that was considered young, the reason we can know this because in chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you because of your youth. We also know from both letters that Paul had this deep love for Timothy. He refers to him as my true child in the faith in chapter 1. And in his second letter, he refers to him as my beloved child. Now, Timothy is currently the pastor 
of a church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus should sound familiar because it's one of the most mentioned cities and churches within Scripture outside of Jerusalem and Antioch. Matter of fact, we can find Ephesus in the book of Acts, and then we know that the letter Ephesians is written to this particular church. First and second Timothy are written to Timothy, who is the pastor of this church, and Ephesus is also found in the book of Revelation as that book is written to one of the seven churches, which is Ephesus. Now, what do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus was a rough town for Christianity. It had persecution from outside the church. People were not very happy about Christianity, so they began to persecute those who belonged to the Christian faith and proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the risen Savior. We also know from all the literature and all the text we have dealing with Ephesus that there were a lot of issues within the church. And so if you're here visiting and you're looking for a perfect church, let me tell you this, you're never going to find it. You will never find a perfect church because a church is made up of the people of God who wrestle with sin and that sin sometimes come out, but we gather together and form the church. So there is no such thing as a perfect church. And Paul is writing to this church because within the church, there is this legalism that is building up. There is this Jewish birthright system that is building up. There is false teachers that are in the church. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he, he says, beware of those false teachers. Those who want to cling to Jewish legalism, if you don't know what legalism is, legalism is basically saying do this and don't do that. And if you do that, that you're not supposed to do, then you can't be a Christian. So you have to do this. You have to stay away from that. And you make all these man-made rules or man-made traditions, which Jesus criticized the Pharisees about, and we rely upon that as our relationship with God instead of having a relationship with God. And they also had Jewish birthright systems where, you know, I belong to this tribe or I belong to this tribe, and they allowed them to puff themselves up and have pride. Well, the charge to Timothy in this letter is that he is to remember his former life. And Paul even says, remember my former life. That the fact of the matter is this. We are saved by faith in the grace of God through the love of Christ and not by works so that no one can boast. It is all about what Jesus Christ did, not what we bring to the table or not what we can proclaim or have pride in what we think we can do. Jesus Christ finished it once and for all. And so we place our faith in him and in him alone. And Paul is saying, Timothy, remember these things. As you have these false teachers and these false ideologies coming up, remember it is by faith in Christ. He gives Timothy then instructions in this letter. This is how you should arrange church leadership. This is how you should build up the church so it is strong and it is functioning the way God intended the church to function, which is his body and his bride. And he says, this is who you should have teaching in the church, and this is who you shouldn't have teaching in the church, Timothy. You have to make sure the church is what God intended it to be. He says, Timothy, in chapter 4, he said, Timothy, you need to hold to good doctrine, and you need to train yourself for godliness. And then the final charge of the letter is that Timothy... In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this heartbreak, and I imagine Timothy is being discouraged in the moment as he looks out at the church of Ephesus and reading this letter, Paul says, Timothy, in the midst of this, you have to fight the good fight. You have to remain true, and you have to stay to what you know is truth. The overall instruction of this letter is for good Christian and biblical leadership, and that leadership is committed to the gospel is committed to the welfare of the church, which is a gathering of God's people, and it is pleasing to God. 
Now we come to our verse that we're looking at in chapter 3, verse 16. Some say this is the heart of the letter, the heart of what Paul was wanting Timothy to grasp and to hang on to, not just because it's the center of the letter, but because it captures what Paul refers to as the good doctrine. This is something Paul wanted Timothy, he wanted us, he wants the church to understand through the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to cling to. I would say this is the foundation of the gospel. This is the foundation of what the church is meant to proclaim and preach, and this is the truth of Easter. Most of us know the Apostle Paul, he was a missionary, he was a church planter, he was a deep theologian, but here in verse 16 he becomes a poet, a poet. And some believe he's pulling from an old Christian hymn. If you don't know what a hymn is, we didn't sing any of them, but they usually are in books. And so he's pulling from this old Christian hymn, and whether that's true or not, we don't know. But some speculate that's what he's doing, that, that believers would know where he's pulling this from. But I think maybe Paul's just pulling from his Old Testament roots. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law of God, the Word of God. And so his poetic background through the book of Psalms led him to write this and pen this. Whether it was a hymn, we know it is inspired Scripture now because God has placed it in His Word. So it's inspired by God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the eternal Word of God. Before we get to verse 16, I want to spend a little time in verse 15 to set up this verse in Paul's dealing with the church, he's writing to Timothy on how to lead it and what the church should cling to, and refers to the church as the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. The word buttress in verse 15 refers to a foundation. The pillar is not only what holds the church up, but it allows the church to be raised up so that it can be seen from afar. And what is this foundation of pillar? Is what Paul is going to point to in verse 16. I believe this poetry holds a lot of deep lines of thought and truth and theology. So we're going to dive into it so we can understand Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. If you look in verse 16, you can see that the hymn, poem, it's broken down into six lines, so that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take each line, line by line. And the word of the Lord says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That phrase that opens the verse, great indeed, can better be read as admittedly great or without a doubt, without question, beyond all reasonable doubt, undeniable, great indeed because this is beyond question and it's referring to the unanimous belief and the unadulterated truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul refers to this as the mystery of godliness, which previously in this chapter he referred to it as the mystery of faith. It's referring to the truth of the plan of salvation which has been in place since eternity and now has been fully revealed and is being preached throughout the entire world about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. And this is why we gather at Easter. The opening line of verse 16 be read as this, 
We can affirm without a shadow of a doubt the absolute truth of the gospel, which God has revealed and continues to reveal through the church. By the way, the Bible refers to church, again, not as a building. I'm glad you're at church, but rather I'm glad you're with the church. The church is a gathering of God's people. And I've said it numerous times on Wednesday night, the church is a gathering of people who have been called out by God from the world so we can in turn call out to the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is this verse revealing? It's revealing the identity, the life, and the testimony of who Jesus Christ was. It says he was manifested in the flesh. Some versions of Scripture, instead of saying he, say who or which, but we know that Paul is pointing to Jesus because he, tra- he just pointed that the church is a foundation and pillar of truth. And the only truth that the church can be built on is that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He told Peter, On this I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. That I am the Son of the living God. In this line of thought, when it says He was manifested in the flesh, it's speaking of the incarnation of Christ. The word incarnation means enfleshment, or the embodiment of flesh. It speaks of this. God became human. God became human and in human form through Jesus Christ. God who is not conformed or confined to any form took on human flesh. That's the definition, but how God did it is truly amazing. The Bible says that Jesus was born of a virgin, And what that means, and this is what about being manifested in the flesh, what that means is Jesus was not born through natural process, but instead his mother Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And it's important because what that means is Jesus was not born in sin like we are. He was without sin. And you might be here this morning, you might be a skeptic, and your question is, well, how can you prove that, Pastor? How can you prove that Jesus was born of a virgin? Let me just be honest with you, I can't. Because I don't have a time machine. I can't go back and ask Mother Mary. I can't ask Father Joseph how this all took place. But I can read in Scripture, and I can see what God says about it. And here's the thing. If that's where you are and you're skeptic, like, how can you prove that, Pastor? Here's the thing. You can't disprove it. You can't. You can't disprove it. You may say, well, that's never happened. I've never seen that happen. That's because it only happened with Jesus Christ. And what the Bible says, and it points out the evidence of the virgin birth, and actually there's more evidence in Scripture, which has been proven to be true of the virgin birth, than it not happening. Because the prophecy of Jesus, who was the Messiah being born of a virgin, was prophesied hundreds of years before it even took place. And they go even further than that. There are prophecies that say this is the exact location where Jesus Christ will be born. He will be born in the city of David, which we know as the town of Bethlehem. It says exactly what tree, what family line he was going to come from in the family line of Judah. That the Messiah would come from that tree line. And that prophecy, we think, oh, maybe that's Isaiah or Jeremiah. That actually comes from Genesis. Thousands of years before Christ was born. And so when you turn to the Gospel of John, it captures this meaning and the importance of understanding the incarnation. And John opens the gate right off the bat. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him not was anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that Word is Jesus Christ. He is the living Word. And Paul and the early believers understood this and had a conviction about that. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul is led by the Spirit to write, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. For in Him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He was manifested in the flesh in saying that God appeared and he revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Since we read in Scripture, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, but he, Jesus, has made him known. Why is this so important? Why are we hanging on this? Because no other world religion can say this. All world religions, when you think of world religions, you think of like Buddhism and Muslim and, and whatever. All world religions, none of them can say this because all world religions were built by a false prophet and his teachings. And get this, all world religions and their false prophets, whoever started that religion, all their, their beginnings, their foundations are still in the grave, but ours is not. He is alive. He is risen. And this is what makes Christianity different because all world religions say you have to do something to prove or earn your way to God. And God says, my son already proved it on your behalf. Faith in him and him alone. He was manifested in the flesh. Why did God do this? In Philippians chapter 2, we're told Christ Jesus who though was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. God became man to die for all the sins of mankind. Hebrews tells us why God had to do it this way, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The sole purpose of Jesus being manifested in the flesh was so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, returning to Hebrews, we're told he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his, of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. But there's more in our verse, isn't there? Not only was he manifested in the flesh, but he was vindicated by the Spirit. That word vindicated literally could be translated as justified, but it's written as vindicated because when we think of justified, we think of when we place our faith in Christ, the Bible says we are justified by our faith. 
That means it's just as if we never sinned before a holy God. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Well, Jesus didn't have sin, so he did not have to be justified. So they wrote the word vindicated. You may have a version of Scripture that says he was proven. He was verified. That's what that word is pointing to. He was verified that he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the living Son of God. And how did this happen? Well, several places. The first time we encounter this is when Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism in the Jordan River. And John the Baptist, who baptized him, he, he gives witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, and who sent John? God. So God said to John, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John, here's his witness, I have borne witness and I have seen that this is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ. This is the long-awaited Messiah. So John is proclaiming, I have seen the Spirit of God descend on Jesus Christ, and so now I proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, or God manifested in the flesh. We also read it was the Spirit of God who led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted. He had to go there to prove that he had to be tempted. He was in the flesh, but the beauty of it is he did not fall into temptation so he might be the perfect sacrifice. We know the Spirit of God has led Jesus through his ministry. It told him where to go and when to go. When Jesus was crucified, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. But before he was crucified, he promised the Holy Spirit to come upon all who believed in him. And that was proven in the book of Acts. There's more. In Ephesians chapter 1. We're told the Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. And we're told in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, it was the Holy Spirit who worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What that means is the spirit vindicated. He verified. He proved the crucifixion was exactly what was needed through Christ so that the wrath of God could be removed from mankind if they placed their faith in Christ alone. And so the Spirit vindicated him. The same Spirit which now dwells inside of every believer, and it vindicates us. It proves to God that we are his children, that we have been adopted by him, that we have the seal of eternity, and it empowers us to live as God's children in this life. Then we're told he was seen by the angels. Again, this happened in Jesus' earthly ministry. After the temptation, we're told that the angels came and were ministering to him. And I love this one. When Jesus was betrayed by Judas, and what we call Good Friday today, and they came to arrest him, good old Peter did a Peter thing. He pulls out his sword, he swings it, and cuts off a guy's ear. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Let me tell you why I love that verse. It means the angels were watching. And at any moment in time, Jesus, the son of the living God, could have called it off. 
He could have called it off. He already had been praying, Lord, please take this cup from me, but if not my will, then your will be done. And now he reveals, you know what, if I wanted to, I could call down heaven's armies and end this right now. But praise the Lord he didn't. As Jesus ascended to sit on the throne of heaven, we're told in the book of Revelation, he is now being worshipped by the heavenly host who now see the Lamb of God who is now risen and in victory. Told in verse 16, he was proclaimed among the nations. Because believers believed with a shadow of a doubt about the incarnation of Christ, the manifestation of the flesh. They believed about the resurrection of Christ, the vindication by the Spirit. They believed of the ascension of Christ and Him being seen by the angels. They preached it. And we might say, well, that's a big deal. But in the first century of Christianity, when you preached Christ, you most likely were going to end in death. All the original apostles minus Judas, were martyred for the faith except John. And John was thrown in a pot of oil to be burned alive but survived. And so they said, well, let's just ship him off to Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. All of the early believers, the witnesses, were martyred for the faith because they were preaching Christ alone is the Son of the living God. He is the King of kings, and He alone is worthy of worship. And it holds great meaning to us. It says that he was proclaimed among the nations. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and he was proclaimed to the Jewish people. But the word nation implies Gentiles. It implies those who are not in, in, in the um, uh, Old Testament covenant of Abraham. That we weren't born naturally Jews. In some versions of scriptures, that word is pagan. It means unbelievers. He was proclaimed to sinners. He was preached to sinners who needed a Savior. And many of us here are the evidence of that preaching today. That someone proclaimed him into our life, into our heart. And so if you need evidence, just look around this room. Evidence that he was manifested. Evidence that he was vindicated. Evidence that he was seen sitting in this room right now. The reason we're here is not only because he was proclaimed, but he was believed on in the world. And this is speaking about the faith and trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And there's another 316 verse that captures what we place our faith and trust in. For God so loved the world. That the world means everyone. Everyone. God doesn't look at nationality. He doesn't look at skin color. He doesn't look at race or gender. God loves everyone. So God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but be given eternal life. That word perish means to be separated from God forever. It reminds me of a song that we sing sometimes here called, I Believe. That song says, I believe in the blood of Jesus that washes white as snow. I believe in the power of the gospel it still makes the broken whole. And I believe that the curse of sin was broken when they rolled away that stone. I believe. Do you believe? Finally, we're told he was taken up in glory. This is to speak of Christ's ultimate glorification. See, when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, this is what he meant. He didn't just say, okay, I'm done. I'm tapping out. 
When Jesus said it is finished, he meant that all the sins in all the world for all time has been paid in full once and for all. It is finished. Jesus Christ finished all of the will that God gave him in living a perfect life and dying for all of mankind's sin and then rising again to show that he now has the power over death and hell. And through his sacrifice, anyone and everyone can be forgiven and be given eternal life. And now he has been taken up in glory. He says that he now sits in full glory as the resurrected and victorious king in the throne room of heaven until the day he is going to return and take all of God's children home to their eternal home. He is risen indeed. This is the truth of Christ right here in this verse. Of all he is, this is what the church believes This is what we as a church must proclaim and rise out into the world with. So how do we respond to such an incredible gift of God? How do we respond to the glory of who Jesus Christ is? I believe we thankfully praise him for who he is and what he's done. And so I'm going to ask Jackson to come up, and he's going to lead us in a song. But here's the thing. Some of y'all may not be familiar with this song, and some of y'all are saying, well, I weren't familiar with the other songs either, so that's fine. So what I want you to do, I'm not going to ask you to stand up. Normally, if, you, if you're here on Sundays, I ask people to stand up and sing along. I'm just going to ask you to sit, read the words of the song, hear the words of the song, and let it become a heart of gratitude in you for what God did for us all, for who Jesus is and what he went through so we might be saved, forgiven, and given eternal life. But there may be some of you all here that have yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And so I want to let you know that you may think you're here just because it's Easter and someone made you come, but the reality is is God of the heavens and the earth is calling out to your heart and he's drawing you to him. He loves you too much to see you die in your sins. And so what he is extending to you today, which many of us have already accepted, is the gift of eternal life that is only found in Jesus Christ. And I want to walk you through how you can accept this gift. It begins by admitting, not to Pastor Mike, not to your spouse, not to your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, but by admitting to God, God, I am a sinner. There are things in my life I am not proud of. There are things in my life I would not proclaim to people. There are things in my life I know I have done wrong. God, I'm a sinner. And then it's telling God, but God, I believe what I just heard here this morning, that Jesus Christ died for my sins. He paid it in full, and then he rose from the grave that I could be completely forgiven, past, present, and future. That means we don't have to live in our shame and disgrace anymore. Jesus Christ died for your sins before you were born, so he knows everything about you. He knows every sin you're ever going to do, even if you've already come to Christ, he knows the sins you're going to do in the future, because Jesus Christ died for the sins of the future as well. And so we say, God, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins and that he rose again that I could be forgiven. And I know I can't work my way to you. I can't earn salvation. I can't earn heaven. But, Lord, you love me too much to not give it to me. And if that's you here this morning, here's what I want you to do. I know people are going to be sitting down and you're going to be like, oh, man. I'm going to ask you to stand up, come down and sit in the front aisle, the front row. 
And I'll come to you. And all you have to say is, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. And that's what the Bible says. We have to confess our need for Christ, confess our need for forgiveness, and confess we believe Jesus Christ did what he did. And I'll pray with you, and I guarantee you, you may feel awkward. You may feel like people are staring at you, but here's what I guarantee you. There will not be a person in this room who does not celebrate with you in the heavenly host. So Jackson's going to lead us in a song because of who he is. We should have a heart of gratitude. We should enter his gates with thanksgiving in our heart. If you know the song, you're, you're welcome to sing along. But if you don't, just listen, see the words. And I want to pray over us real quick. And if you know you need to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to come. Come and sit down and we'll talk. We'll celebrate. We'll pray together. God loves you. Father, thank you for this day. Well, thank you for this day we call Easter where we get to just be in awe of who you are and what you've done. Lord, you have canceled the debt that we owe. Those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, you have canceled all of our debts. And our names are written in your book. Father, I have no doubt there are individuals here today who are not your children. They have not been saved. They have not been forgiven. And so their eternal life is not secured with you. But right now, their eternal life is secured away from you forever. And Lord, because you are good and you are loving and you are kind and you are merciful, you allow us to come before you with all of our baggage and lay them at your feet and be saved and forgiven, not by anything we can do. And I praise you, Lord, that you reveal through your word that you know everything about us. There's nothing hidden in our life from you. So you're not shocked. There's nothing we've done you, you didn't see coming. And yet you still love us. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for the promise that this life is not the end. That one day we will see you in glory. you, be overwhelmed by you. So in this moment, Lord, let your will be done in every heart here. Let your kingdom come. And Lord, let this be the day of salvation for those who are living apart from you. We pray so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's just remain seated. And you sing. Listen to the words, read the words. But if you need to come down and accept Christ, I'm going to be standing right here. You don't have to come to me if you want to just sit in the front row. I'll come to you. But I believe there are people in this room that this is to be the day of your salvation.